Hey everybody, this is Chris from the Sausage of Science, and we are putting together a few bonus episodes. We had a couple guest speakers as part of our Allele series, one which you've already heard, the lecture and interview with Dr. Prasanta Chakrabarty. We have another one from Dr. Muhammad Noor. Dr. Noor is an evolutionary biologist from Duke University who gave an awesome lecture called Using Star Trek to Understand Evolution. How could there be so many alien humanoid species? And so we did an interview with him. And with that interview, we have this lecture that he gave that we've edited for brevity and to take out any references to slides that you can't see. So if you like what you've been hearing on the Sausage of Science, of course, you can go to any of your podcast servers, iTunes, SoundCloud, Player FM, Stitcher, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Like us, comment, tell us how awesome we are. But anyway, enjoy. Thank you all for coming to my talk. Uh, as you see my title here, Evolution Work Drive, how there be so many humanoid species in Star Trek? That question that I've written up there is absurd, right? I mean, there are no, I, I think I can state without any word whatsoever being wrong, there are no humanoid species that are not on Earth, <laughs> okay? Just, to, just put that out there. However, my goal from this talk, and this is a goal for much of what's written in my book as well, is to bring evolutionary concepts and evolutionary thinking to thought questions, right? That's what we're going to try to go through today. And what I like in the context of thought questions is using science fiction, whether it be Star Trek or otherwise. The great thing about science fiction is you can think of it in the context of a hypothesis about what the world may be like in the future. When you have this hypothesis, you can develop predictions. If this is what we see in the future, or if this is what we see on some other world, what do we expect? What are clear predictions from this? And how can we test those empirically? The reason I like doing this with Star Trek in particular is because, well, first of all, Star Trek tries to do things in the context of some science. Sometimes those scientific explanations are lacking, <laughs> but they're always there. The other thing about Star Trek is there's just a huge body of work from which to draw. There are 13 Star Trek movies, about the same number as there are Star Trek movies, including the spin-off ones. But there's also over 700 episodes of some sort of Star Trek, so you have something to watch later on. <laughs> you haven't caught up on all of them. So let's start with the thought experiment of life on the worlds. This, what's pictured up here is, is from the original series of Star Trek. This is from the 1960s, so yeah, the effects are not great. Um, this is called the Horda. This was a living organism, even though it looks like something between pizza and a rug. <laughs> it's a living organism. It's got eggs. It moves around, it interacts, it communicates. There's no ambiguity that this thing is alive, even though it's completely foreign. So let's, again, thought experiment. Uh, we just had the inside lander land on Mars earlier this week. Yeah. Thumbs up to that. What if on the little screen of Inside Lander you see this thing? What is this? Is this alive? It's not moving, it's not talking. You know, how would you know if it's alive? By the way, that's original, but imagine for a second it's not original. Like, how would you know if this is something that's alive? How would you test this? Well, there's certain attributes of life here on Earth. This is just a subset of them right here. The typical life on Earth is composed of carbon-based molecules. All the all molecules think of from life, carbohydrates, fats, proteins, DNA, RNA, those all have a long chain carbon backbone. So this is one attributes of life on Earth. All life on Earth uses water as a solvent. None of us here are made up with like liquid ammonia. 
right? The solvent that's used to dissolve whatever's going on there is water. And we have these thermal tolerances on Earth that are, you know, range from minus 20-ish, and there's some more hidden to build over, minus 20-ish Celsius up to a little bit over 100 Celsius, that things can live in that range. But what might we see in other worlds? This is from Star Trek Next Generation. Doctor, what is the definition of life? That is a big question. Why do you ask? I'm searching for a definition that will allow me to test an hypothesis. Well, the broadest scientific definition might be that life is what enables plants and animals to consume food, derive energy from it, grow, adapt themselves to their surroundings, and reproduce. And you suggest that anything that exhibits these characteristics is considered alive? In general, yes. What about fire? Fire? Yes. It consumes fuel to produce energy. It grows. It creates offspring. By your definition, is it alive? Fire is a chemical reaction. You could use the same argument for growing crystals, but obviously we don't consider them alive. And what about me? I do not grow, yet I am considered to be alive. That's true. But you are unique. Hmm. I wonder if that is so. Data, if I may ask, have a seat. What exactly are you getting at? I'm curious as to what transpired between the moment when I was nothing more than an assemblage of parts in Dr. Sohn's laboratory and the next moment when I became alive. That's a really powerful question there at the end, right? What transpired at the moment between when he was an assemblage of parts and when he was suddenly alive? So Dr. Crusher, the doctor who we saw there speaking, actually gave a pretty decent explanation for like the textbook definition of life, despite our overemphasis on plants and animals. Obviously, a lot of things are alive that don't fit into those categories. But here's the standard textbook list for life, right? You know, things acquire energy, they have some sort of organization, constant general environment, grow, reproduce, respond to stimuli. But not all things that are alive do all of those things. Right? So, I mean, data of Android, you could argue maybe he's not alive, but let's use a mule, for example. A mule is sterile. It is not able to reproduce. We don't say that it's no longer alive. Right? So, this is an interesting list because anything that's alive doesn't necessarily have to have all these things. And there are things which we consider not alive, which have several of these attributes as well. So, this is an interesting open question. Now, the field of exobiology is, has grown quite a bit in the last couple of years, and a lot of people are really interested in how we would identify something completely unfamiliar as alive. Not something like a horda that that eats a rug thing I was showing you earlier, but something more like that hair gel. Like, how would we determine, especially remotely, if something was alive? So I'm going to tell you just a little bit of progress. These are things that actually just came out in the past year, so this is actually not in the, in the book over there, because it came out after I already submitted the book. But there have been some interesting approaches for studying unfamiliar life. Some of it was done by this person here, Leroy Cronin, from the University of Glasgow in the chemistry department there. He proposed this probabilistic approach for determining if something either is alive or came from something alive. Typically speaking, if you go out into an environment where there's nothing alive, let's say onto a dead moon or something like that, most of the things you see are not especially complex. Right? You see like elements, you see some simple compounds, but you don't see things that have this high level of complexity. What he proposes is doing something where you compare the item identified to its surroundings and see how many steps it would take for that to have come about just by non-biological processes. And from that, you can then assess the complexity and say, this is too complex to be what we might consider non-biological. 
And that sounds ideal in some sense, but how do we do that remotely? Like, how would something like the Insight Lander do that? Well, there's some research by somebody else. This is uh, Sarah Johnson from Georgetown University. She's an exobiologist there who's collaborating extensively with NASA. She proposes this chemometric approach. This is really cool. What they do is that when something is identified, they literally just spray small stretches of DNA, so oligonucleotides, small bits of DNA onto it. They will form, they will, they will basically make a structure. You can assess the complexity of that structure on it based on how DNA forms to see if this is too complex or not. This is a great way of assessing this sort of thing remotely where what we can't do with these sorts of lander stuff is bring something back and see if it's alive. Right? One of the biggest reasons is the tolerance is probably not going to be the same Let's say, for example, we did find something that used liquid uh, ammonia as a solvent. When we bring it back to Earth, what's going to happen? It's going to, like, what is ammonia on Earth? It's not liquid. <laughs> It'll boil. Right? So you'll probably just immediately kill it by bringing it back. So that we need ways of assessing if things are alive remotely versus uh, trying to bring it back. So that's just a little aside that I wanted to, I wanted to point out some of these interesting new approaches that are coming up. Now, most of you have seen some sort of science fiction, and generally there we don't see things like the hair gel life form. Generally we see life that's much more similar to life as we know it. There's some pictures both from the, the recent Star Trek reboots as well as the original series. But most of what we encounter there are these large, million bipeds. They're, they're typically humanoid, they may be blue, they may have a pink snap, but they're pretty humanoid. But look at the background in the lower picture, that's from the most recent Star Trek movie. That could be like two miles off campus here. There's trees, there's like bushes, there's uh, presumably all sorts of microbes to sustain that stuff. But a lot of uh, the similarity to life as we know it goes beyond appearances in Star Trek, where we see a lot of hybrids. What? <laughs> in fact, in the Star Trek series, there's at least 15 alien species that produce hybrids that are alive with humans. That's kind of out there. There's a few of the picture on the side. Mr. Spock, the Vulcan human hybrid, is one of the most famous ones that haven't been born there. And um, that's ex exceedingly unlikely to have been possible, though it may have been appealing to some of the actors. But we'll set that aside right now. The overarching question of this entire talk, setting aside the humanoid aspect, could we see life as we know it elsewhere? And if so, how? Now, I'm going to be discussing this in the context of humanoid life just because that's what we see in Star Trek. But we could use the same thing in the context of, let's say we see something that looks like a bacteria on Mars or on Europa or whatever your favorite you know, moon or planet is. How would we study it? How would we, how would we see in what way it's related to life here on Earth? Yeah, the most logical answer to, to seeing life as we know it elsewhere is that in some way it is related to life on Earth. But we want to examine that a little bit more closely. I'm going to split this talk into two parts. The first half of this talk is going to be talking about uh, evidence for evolution and common ancestry and some basic principles of evolution. So apologies to those of you who already know a lot of that, but basically I'm going to bring out the toolkit that we'll use for the second half. The second half of the talk, I'm going to present three hypotheses that are raised in a very Star Trek series for why there are so many humanoids out there. And we're going to use the toolkit to assess those hypotheses and see how good they are. I will say one of them could work with some stretches. One could work, the other two don't. <laughs> so, let's start this off with something that I know most of you here are already familiar with. And that is that all life, all life on Earth has a single origin. One single origin, something between 3.84 billion years ago. This was actually depicted in Star Trek too, we'll figure it out, pretty good. You know, something happened there to start that first life form. From that life form, oh, and I should say there's tons of evidence for this, which we'll get into in just a minute. 
From that life form, we see the diversity of life today. Ah, what happened between that first life form and this? Just yell it out, one word. Evolution. <laughs> evolution is why we see this diversity of life today. And evolution has two general principles to it. The first is that this idea that modern species have a common ancestor. Right? So you see the formation of new lineages from an ancestral lineage. So something, you know, some number of million years ago, horses, zebras, and donkeys were all one species. The ancestors of horses, zebras, and donkeys were all one species. And they split into what today form those three distinct species. But also we have change within lineage. So if you go to 60 million years ago, horses were actually the size of dogs, they had toes, and you can see this, tra this transition of forms into the fossil record from the horse of 60 million years ago to the modern horse, which you know, stands quite a bit tall, about 1.6 meters tall rather than half a meter tall. That's quite a bit of change. I'm going to focus more on the left part here, this, this formation of new lineages from an ancestor. And this is something that's, of course, not unique to horses. We know this in the context of humans, for example. All of us here, all of us here share common ancestors within humans, right? So what we also tend to see is that individuals from a given ethnic group are generally speaking more closely related to each other than ones from a different one. So we have here Native Americans, they share a common ancestor a little bit more recently. You can think of the right side as being present day and the left as being going back in time. Native Americans maybe share a common ancestor a little bit more recently with each other than they do with East Asians or than they do with Europeans, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Pretty straightforward. I think we all know that. This is also true when you look across primates. So humans and gorillas share a common ancestor more recently than humans do with gibbon, or than humans do with rhesus monkey, or than humans do with owl monkey, humans do with lemur, or of course rat and mouse. Now, this of course is not limited to primates. This goes to, here's the entire tree of life. This is a bit of a hard figure here. Imagine the middle being about four, four billion years ago, and everything radiating out in all directions is, is more recent. We're related to everything, it's a lot. This is a hard thing to grasp. We don't usually think about like, you know, walking in here, you probably stepped on some grass and you think, whoops, that was Uncle Bob, <laughs> right? But you are related to it, just way farther back. And I think part of the reason why people don't think about this and are sometimes even a little bit uncomfortable with this is the way it's covered in, in schools. So there was a survey published in 2011 uh, exploring how teachers present evidence for evolution in biology classes. Only 28% presented the evidence for evolution in a straightforward manner. Less than a third. In contrast, 13% explicitly advocate alternatives, giving them an hour and a half or more of time. And probably over half, 60%, avoided the controversy. So when I first moved to Durham in 2005, when my kids were enrolled in the school system, uh, I heard there was a school board debate. I actually went. There was the people, the candidates running for the school board on the stage, their spouses, and me in the audience. That was it. So I submitted a question and it got read because almost nobody else submitted a question. That was, what is your take on the teaching of evolution in Durham public schools? Three of them wouldn't answer. Like, I don't want to answer that question. There were a couple who said, well, I think evolution should be given equal time with all other possible options. There were two who did say that evolution is science, of course we should cover it. And the last person who spoke said something along the lines of evolution is an evil teaching. I can't believe somebody submitted this question. It doesn't belong in our schools. That person was already on the school board. So you don't, you can't blame these people for avoiding controversy. Well, Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine is set in 2370 in the future. Apparently the issue still holds, at least on the planet Major, which is where a lot of it is set. And I'll play a little clip from there. Ignore. Find other ways, other things to teach the children. 
And when we get to theories of evolution or creation of the universe, what then? We'll face those issues when we come to them. I'm a teacher. My responsibility is to expose my students to knowledge, not hide it from them. The answer is no. I'm trying to be reasonable. Anybody who watched the show knows that person is not reasonable. <laughs> we'll set that aside. So let's, let's talk about what is the evidence for evolution. Okay, rather than just throwing stones. What is the evidence of evolution? Right? I already gave you a little bit of it right off the bat. And that first of all, all life on Earth shares many, many basic atoms. I mentioned there's water-based, carbon-based, inherited spike, clay gases. Everything, everything has inherited spike, DNA, and even historically, we think everything is either DNA or RNA. What I think is more striking is that it's basically the same DNA code for amino acids across all life. You may remember, like, so DNA, you know, encodes amino acids which get made into long proteins that are used in your body. But the DNA code. For example, for the amino acid and thiamine, it's an ATG DNA code for it. That is exactly the same code in you as it is in rhesus monkey, as it is in sunflower, as it is in Ebola. There's no particular reason why those three DNA letters should be associated with methionine, just a priori. There's no reason why like, they in some way make methionine or anything like that. It's just random, but it makes sense from a historical standpoint if the first life had that or or some ancient life had that code, that that would continue to be passed on over time. That I find very striking to me, so that's very moving. Well, let me show you something that's a little bit more accessible in the context of why I think evolution is kind of an obvious thing. This idea of common ancestry is kind of an obvious thing. And a lot of that comes from the classification of species. So classification of species was first done in a comprehensive manner by Linnaeus in 1735. So let's, use, let's start with the dog. So the dog is an animal, no question about that. It's a, it's a vertebrate, it has a backbone. It's a mammal, hairy, and gives milk to its offspring. And it's canine, based on you know, attributes of its you know, facial shape and appearance. So we've got a fox. Fox is also an animal, also a vertebrate, still got the backbone. Still a mammal, still nurses its young, hairy, and still the same sort of uh, canine shape. Cat, animal, vertebrate, still has the backbone. Mammal still gives milk, but it's not a canine. Right? It clearly looks different from the other two. And I'm getting to a point, I promise. <laughs> Seagull, still animals, still vertebrates, still has that backbone, but no, does not give milk, it's not hairy. And my favorite, because I work on this one, fly, animal, no backbone, not vertebrate, definitely not an animal, I think so. You can see this classification of species works out pretty well. What's interesting, the insight that did not come from Linnaeus but came later, is that this classification reflects shared ancestry. That species that share the most traits have the most recent common ancestor. And you can see this looking at the tree of life. So what well, we see, so imagine in this case, distant past is low on the grass, low on the grass, present day is high. Dog and fox share an ancestor. Dog and fox share an ancestor not very long ago. Dog and cat share it further back. Dog and seagull, still further back than a seagull. Dog and fly, very far back. Just makes sense, right? Well, let me show you a way that you would even know more you see the same thing on a much smaller scale, just looking within your own family. Generally speaking, people look more like their siblings than they do like their cousins, right? Generally speaking, people look more like their first cousins than they do like, uh, like their second cousins. So you can see the same thing going on here, that you and your siblings share a more recent common ancestor than you and your first cousin. Your, your common ancestor with your siblings, your parents, your common ancestor with your first cousins, your grandparents, your second cousins, your great grandparents. These things are true for the same reason. Individuals with the most recent shared ancestors tend to share the most traits for the same reason, both when you're looking at millions of years as in the top graph, 
as when you're looking at tens of years of the bottom track. And for this reason, the classification system that Linnaeus introduced still holds today for many, many, many traits, but not just for many like traits in terms of morphology, but even for DNA sequences. This is a stretch from the cytochrome C oxidase subunit 1 gene. Dog and fox have exactly the same DNA sequence. Dog and cat differ only those last two letters. Dog and seagull differ in three letters. Dog and fly differ in six. That's really striking, isn't it? And it's all true for the same reason. Of course, the most familiar, the most familiar evidence for common ancestry of white is not looking at DNA sequence, because this is obviously something that's fairly new. But it's probably more in the context of the fossil record. Those of you who have heard people who are uh, against the teaching of evolution, they typically try to speak these comments like, oh, the fossil record has lots of holes, lots of gaps. So with that ominous voice too, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> in fact, we actually have very, very, very good fossil records for many, many transitional forms. What I'm showing here is just some of the examples. This is looking at the origin of birds from dinosaurs on the, on the left, the origin of, of cetaceans, big sea mammals like uh, whales and porpoises from uh, hoofed land animals on the right. If you were to do the same graph, and just looking at all the transitional forms over time, maybe about 50 years ago, we wouldn't have had most of those intermediates, but every day, every day, paleontologists are out there filling in all those gaps. There's never been something where it's like, wow, that just doesn't make any sense, except the smallest, smallest degree. So really, there's tons of transitional forms out there. This idea of the gaps is very much overblown and, and mistaken. Now, I want to address two common misconceptions that come up in the context of, of evolution. One is that we descend from chimpanzees. You often go and see this sort of thing. It sort of implies that maybe humans came from chimpanzees. That is not true. We do not have chimpanzees, nor do chimpanzees have human ancestors, because we are siblings in the phylogenetic tree. This is all modern day. So humans and chimps share a common ancestor. One did not come from the other. Just in the same way, you did not descend from your siblings. Right? You share a common ancestor, your parents. Remember, life started something around 3.84 billion years ago. Everything has been evolving since then. Everything. That includes amoeba, that includes chimp, that includes human. Everything's been evolving over that entire time. There's no, there's no more evolved than less evolved. It just doesn't even make any sense. And plus, I mean, Amoebae are pretty darn cool. Amoebae are shapeshifters. I can't do that. <laughs> right? Amoeba, like, if you put an amoeba in a really tough environment, they can form this hardened cyst and last through it for like decades. What do we do when we're in a really tough environment? We just die. <laughs> so maybe they're the more involved. <laughs> anyway, just wanted to address those couple of misconceptions. So let's get back to the big question of why might extraterrestrial life look similar to life on Earth? And we've established that there's very, very strong evidence for common ancestry and knocked out a couple of misconceptions. Well, one possible reason might have to do with natural selection. Before we talk about natural selection, I want to get into one quick uh, thing in terms of why things often look different. And a lot of species things look different, either within species or between species, because the groups have been isolated. Generally speaking, isolated populations on Earth will evolve differences. Like different mutations will arise in one population versus another, and then they'll start to look different. Also, there's different, different types of natural selection. We'll come back to that in just a second, which may make one, one people in one group look different from people in another. This applies not just to animals. We see this in the context of Australian animals, of course, because they've been isolated for a long time. But this is true also in the context of human ethnic groups. It's for a long time, I mean, present day this doesn't apply, but for a long time, human ethnic groups were isolated. They were on different continents, they were not encountering each other. And that's part of why different human ethnic groups look a little bit different. So, what happens in these isolated populations? 
A lot of what happens is evolution by natural selection. I'm going to explain this with an example, and I'm going to go through that example in even more depth in just a second. With evolution by natural selection, you imagine that you know, there is a trait which is not optimal. So imagine, for example, this brown bear in this white environment. That brown bear stands out really, really well. You can see it from very far away. If it's chasing down some caribou or something, I don't know what brown bears If it's chasing down some caribou or something like that, you can see it from a mile away. Now imagine a random mutation arises with this brown bear that makes it white. It just knocks out you know, some pigmentation producing. That bear is now much less visible. It's able to get more food and it's more likely to have more offspring. So there's an advantage to these new types. By virtue of getting more food, it'll have more offspring. And the mutation will spread because its offspring will get that mutation for the white bird color as well. So let's iterate this. And I want, to, I want to stress one particular point here. That is that natural selection is a mathematical inevitability. It's not a theory or a controversial idea. It is a mathematical inevitability. You cannot avoid having natural selection if you have a couple of, uh, a couple of specific things to go. That's if you have a trait that is heritable and variable and affects how many offspring you have. You have those three things. A trait is variable, variable and based on the offspring you have, you will have an evolution by natural selection. So we're going to do a little example here with the, the, the brown bear, white bear. It could just as easily be like ear shape, but we'll do it with the bears. <laughs> now let's imagine that the brown bears on average replace themselves. So let's say the brown bears, if there's 100 brown bears, they have 100 brown bear offspring and then the parents die. So we're not saying that they're unfit, we're just saying that you know, they're basically they're breaking people. Let's imagine that the white bears, have on average two offspring. What are we going to get in the next generation? We'll have 100 brown bears and how many white bears? So you all got 200. Very good. So we've gone from 50% white bears to 66%. We iterate this two more times. We go to 80% white bears. We go to 89% white bears. Eventually, the entire population will be white. There'll be negligibly small fraction of brown bears. That is natural selection. And again, it is mathematically inevitable. You can't avoid it. Okay? Now, one thing natural selection does occasionally, this is when we get back to the alien aspect, is natural selection sometimes will cause convergence. What that means is that species that are very distantly related may end up having some attributes which make them look like another species, just because they're in a very similar environment. So, for example, you see up here, turn off our pointer. We see like, you know, sharks and dolphins have a similar sort of overall body shape, right? We have uh, over here the flying squirrel and sugar glider, again, similar sorts of adaptations. Puffin and penguin look a little bit similar. Now, you can see this because, again, these things tend to be in the same sorts of environments. So there's been natural selection to look similar in those sorts of areas. Now, I will say that even when we see convergence, they're never identical. And if you look in more detail, you tend to find a lot more different. What about the aliens in Star Trek? <laughs> Well, we see, like, apparently there's been some sort of selection for differences in forehead ridges, <laughs> maybe color, but arguably these guys are probably too similar to be explained by some sort of convergence, some sort of convergent natural selection. Well, the Star Trek writers knew this was an issue. They probably got teased endlessly about it. So I'm going to present three hypotheses that came up in Star Trek. We're going to break each one down to three predictions, and then we're going to see how true those predictions are or possibly could be. So 
this first one is the one that probably most people are familiar with when they think about this if you if you've watched a lot of Star Trek. This is from the episode called The Chase. And this is the introduction of a concept called panspermia, which we'll talk about in more detail in just a second. Just for reference, what has happened up until this point, the crew have been uh, assembling bits of DNA from all these different species, and all of a sudden, this computer program runs using the bits of DNA as, as what was coding it. You're wondering who we are, why we have done this, how it has come that I stand before you. The image of a being from so long ago. Life evolved in my planet before all others in this part of the galaxy. We left our world, explored the stars, and found none like ourselves. Our civilization thrived for ages. But what is the life of one race compared to the last stretches of cosmic time? We knew that one day we would be gone, that nothing of us would survive. So, we left you. Our scientists see that the primordial oceans of many worlds, where life was in its infancy. The sea codes directed your evolution toward a physical form resembling ours. This body you see before you, which is a co-shaped, is yours a shaped. For you are the end result. The seed cones also contain this message, which is scattered in fragments on many different worlds. It was our hope that you would have to come together in fellowship and companionship to hear this message. And if you can see and hear me, our hope has been fulfilled. You are a monument. Not to our greatness, but to our existence. That was our wish, that you too would know life and would keep alive our memory. There is something of us in each of you, and so something of you in each other. Remember us. That's all? If she were not dead, I would kill her. The very notion that a Cardassian could have anything in common with a Klingon, it turns my stomach. Cargo Enterprise, then advisor. Well, there's a lot to unpack in this one. <laughs> so, just highlight a couple of bits from that. Life evolved on, on their planet from the, the dough-faced lady. Um, long before all others, uh, they went around, their scientists seeded the primordial oceans where quote-unquote life was in its infancy. Don't quite know what that means, we'll come back to that. And supposedly these seed codes directed evolution towards physical form that we see today. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there. So, here are just three of them. We have a lot more predictions. But here's just three of the predictions. First, the raw materials for life came from outer space. I guess this could be in the context of when they say life is in its infancy. It's unclear if they mean that, oh, we dropped off some bacteria-like things, or if they were, there was just some amino acids and they added DNA to it. It's a little bit unclear exactly what it is, but we'll come back to that. There's this idea of convergence with life seeded elsewhere at the same time. So again, it wasn't just you know Earth that was seeded with life in this, but also Cardassia Prime, Quinod, Homeworld, Kronos, things like that. And there's the persistence of these seed codes over time. 
Well, let's go through each of these in, time, uh, in an order. The first one is pretty feasible. This is the idea of transparency, that either life or some components of life came to Earth from outer space. So again, the first life on Earth is estimated to be around 4 billion years ago. There is evidence for extraterrestrially formed amino acids. We've seen these in meteorites. So it's possible that they were introduced to Earth by some meteorite molecule. There are components, there's not ever whole, there's components of DNA and RNA that have also been isolated from meteorites. So again, in principle, there's no reason why this first life on Earth couldn't have come from outer space in some way, either, either whole or in parts. So a little check mark by that one. Second one is a little bit more problematic. It's convergence with life seated elsewhere at the same time. Now, often when I talk to people about this, they say, well, doesn't that assume that the environment on you know, planet Cardassia Prime is exactly the same as it is on Earth? Maybe, it maybe assumes that, at least at the very end, it assumes the same sort of conditions, but I think the problem is much, much, much deeper than that. Some of this comes from a thought exercise introduced by Stephen Jay Gould, a paleontologist. By the way, I'm pretty sure he's the only evolutionary biologist to ever play himself on The Simpsons. <laughs> but anyway, he, uh, he, put, he put out this thought experiment of like, if you were to rewind the tape of life and play it again, would you get the same outcome? Basically, how much determinism is there in what's going to come out? How much is there a role of chance events? The assumption here is that random events play little or no role. If you rewind the tape like you play it again, you get exactly the same outcome. Now, he argued, and I think rightfully so, that there is actually a very big role of chance events. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. What is the mitochondria? Just yell it. Where, where do you teach people this? Because like, I've done this in the sixth graders, and they're always like, it's the power of us. like, where, how does everybody know this? <laughs> That's amazing. You're right. It's the powerhouse of the cell. Where did it come from? Well, a little under 2 billion years ago, a single-celled organism here on Earth swallowed a bacterium. That bacterium essentially survived inside it, and it had the machinery to provide energy to the thing that swallowed it. As that big cell divided, some of the, some of the bacteria also divided into the new cell, and eventually that became, over the next several billion years, the mitochondria that we see today in plants and animals and fungi, that is a very random event. Right? This happened for the mitochondria, it's happened once, it also happened for the chloroplast for the bigger juice in plants. Very random event, but this is extremely important to the radiation of animals, plants, and fungi on Earth. Let me show you another random event. About 65 billion years ago, we had an asteroid come boom, right to Mexico. Around the same time, there's a lot of volcanic activity happening on Earth. By the way, it was also mentioned in uh, one of the episodes of Star Trek Enterprise. Those events played a big role, or at least they thought to have played a big role, in, the, in cutting back dinosaurs here on Earth. Because the dinosaurs on Earth got cut back, we see a dramatic radiation of mammals right after that. Mammals were around before that, but we see this massive radiation of mammals right after that. That is a very random event that had a big role in what we see today. Let me show you both these events on that tree of life. This is the tree of life I showed you all just a little bit ago. Let's look at what was happening 65 million years ago. So just follow this little curve. Follow this little curve. This is a mass extinction of dinosaurs. Look at how much how much mammals were eating right in that period. Tons and tons of new mammal things come out. We do the same thing going back two billion years ago. You see this massive radiation of plants, animals, and fungi all from this acquisition of the mitochondria. All of this happened 
and this is very random. Now, what does this mean if aliens exceeded life on Earth at the same time as they had in these other places four million years ago? It means that you are literally more closely related to grass than you are to a Vulcan or to a Klingon. <laughs> we, well, supposedly humans can breed with Vulcans. I don't think we can breed with grass. <laughs> so, clearly something's amiss there. Well, let, let's, let's play this out a little bit more. Here's the dough person. She goes back into ancient Earth, where ancient Earth didn't look like modern Earth, of course. And maybe they seeded some, they seeded some something on all those different planets. Maybe they aimed asteroids at all of them too to knock back the dinosaurs on all those planets. And somehow or another, the seed codes directed these things that look very, very similar to the life that we see now in Star Trek in those worlds. Well, let's think about this the seed code aspect. I've sort of set that aside for now. This is the third prediction code. We can actually mathematically assess this step. We're going to put a couple, of, uh, a couple of assumptions on this, and I know these assumptions are assumptions, so they could be violated. Let's assume the seed code has to do with the DNA sequence, okay? We're just going to assume that. Now, what would it take for this code to persist? Well, we know random mutation should disrupt that code. It's just the DNA sequence. A random mutation should disrupt that code. Well, let's put a couple of numbers on this. Let's say we spent the first 1.5 million years as a microbe. Reasonable, which is probably what happened here on Earth. Let's say there's about 100 cell divisions per year, and I put a mutation rate, that's actually a pretty low mutation rate. Let's say this is the mutation rate that would happen. So, if we have this, what's the probability that any one DNA element would not change over that whole period of time? Well, that probability is about one in three million, or about half the probability that any specific one of you will be hit by a meteor. Again, very, very, very unlikely. So, looking at this hypothesis overall, could the raw materials for life come from outer space? Yeah, that's okay. Could it have converged after four billion years with life seeded elsewhere and look that similar? Yeah. And could the, could the seed codes have persisted over that length of time? With the assumption that I put it in there, that it's in the DNA sequence, that there's not some specific constraint on it. Yeah. So, we could probably reject this first time. This next one is from the original series of Star Trek. This is now from the 1960s rather than 1990s version. Uh, for context, what's happened is the episode called Returns Tomorrow. Enterprise has shown up on this planet. They're being called down by some force, but they don't know what's going on. They haven't seen a person yet. You may use your tricorder, Mr. Spock. Your readings will show energy, but no substance. Sealed in this receptacle is the essence of my mind. Pure energy. Matter without form. Impossible. But you once had a body of some kind. A body much as yours, my children. Although our minds were infinitely greater. That's twice you referred to us as my children. Because it is possible you are our descendants, Captain Kirk. Six thousand centuries ago, our vessels were colonizing this galaxy, just as your own starships have now begun to explore that vastness. As you now leave your own seed on distant planets, so we left our seed behind us. Perhaps your own legends of an Adam and an Eve were two of our travels. Our beliefs and our studies indicate that life on our planet Earth evolved independently. That would tend, however, to explain certain elements of Vulcan prehistory. In either case, I do not know. It was so long ago, 
that the records of our travels were lost in the cataclysm which we loosened upon ourselves. All right, let's break this one down to a couple of things. So first, you know, what's the punchline for this? That supposedly 6,000 centuries ago, Sargon's ancestors' vessel, or maybe Sargon's vessel, not sure how long it's been from colonizing the galaxy, maybe legends of an Adam and Eve were two of our travels. Oh, just a little Trek trivia for anybody who watched Next Generation. I don't know if you've noticed, but the person who plays the Doctor in Dr. Animal Hall is the same actress who played Dr. Pulaski in Next Generation. It's a little Trek trivia. <laughs> so let's, let's break this one down. So the first prediction of this is that Earth was at some point in time visited by alien forms. I have absolutely no way of assessing this, so I'm just going to put a check mark. The second is that it was about 600,000 years ago in humanoid, and you know, in some way that over 600,000 years we might evolve from some ancestral form to a modern form. The third is that modern humans descend from these spacefarers. Well, the second one is not so bad if you look at it in the context of what was going on in Earth 600,000 years ago, right? That this is around the time Homo erectus was on Earth. There were other hominids as well, but uh, Homo erectus was around on Earth. You can imagine that over 600,000 years, you know, some space travels that look like Homo erectus could have then evolved on Earth to look like modern humans, maybe evolved on, you know, Cardassia Prime, to look like Cardassians, which is pretty similar to us, or on Chronos to look like Klingons. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I wouldn't rule that out. The problem is this idea of who we descend from. This hypothesis assumes that we are not related to other life on Earth that goes back more than that many centuries ago. Assumes we're not related to chimps, gorillas, lemurs, all those kinds of things. But remember, there's a ton of DNA in this that we are related. But also importantly, there's a very good fossil record on Earth. Very good fossil record here on Earth that we share common ancestors with chimpanzees, gorillas, things like that. But that means that the evolution of humans happened on Earth because the bones are here. They're not on some other world like Sargon's homeworld. So that one we can rule out pretty safely. So in the second hypothesis, like, is it by alien forms? Sure. 600,000 years ago, evolving the modern humanoids? Okay. But no, we can't have modern humanoids descending from these space areas because it does assume we're not related to other Earth life forms. I will say this again possible that all Earth life came from some microbe from space four billion years ago, but that's not, that's not what they proposed here. That's more exactly the first one. So, last and most certainly not least. This is from the episode called The Paradise Syndrome. This one's going to take a little bit of explaining for the context. Enterprise, this is again the 60s version. The Enterprise shows up on this planet, they go down, there's a bunch of trees, grass, and oh look, there's a bunch of Native Americans over there. <laughs> a little strange. <laughs> there's, also a, there's also an obelisk there. Kirk has gotten knocked out and he, he got some one Native Americans pregnant. Let's <laughs> send all that aside, man. <laughs> let's, play, let's play the clip. This is a short clip. Were you able to make any sense out of the symbols? Yes, the obelisk is a marker, just as I thought. It was left by a super race known as the Preservers. They passed through the galaxy, rescuing primitive cultures which were in danger of extinction and seeding them, so to speak, where they could live and grow. I've always wondered why there were so many humanoids scattered through the galaxy. So have I. Apparently, the Preservers account for a number of them. That's probably how the planet has survived all these centuries. So this is kind of the opposite of the other one that I just showed. Again, these preservers pass through the galaxy, rescuing primitive cultures in danger of extinction, which I guess is some Native American tribe in this case, and seeded them elsewhere where they could live. 
Presumably, they wouldn't just see the devil, they would have to take it like the grass and the fish and the trees and all those kind of things. We'll just leave that in. So, again, three predictions, just like previously. The first is that some life on Earth went to space, right? It's the opposite direction of the other one. Second is the timing. We're going to play with the Native American time. We won't use that. We'll try some different time. And the third is that modern aliens descend from ancient Earth hominids. Well, the first prediction in this case is unambiguously true. It's some life on Earth probably has gone to other planets. And part of this is in the context of the spaceships that we send off into space all the time. Now, before we send something into space, we try to sterilize it. Well, we don't mean us, but like we need NASA or European Space Agency, all of them. They try to sterilize it, but they can't feasibly and at a reasonable expense completely sterilize it. So as an example, this is from the uh, Mars Curiosity rover, some uh, numbers from the NASA report on it. They estimate there are probably still about 278,000 spores on the flight system, and something like 56,000 were actually protected you know, from the outside on the hardware surfaces. That then was sent to Mars. It is quite possible, quite possible, that some of those life forms are not, that are still, like the spores are still recoverable. You could bring it back to Earth, put it in a good environment, and it would actually you know, start spreading. So this is probably happening. Now this is an intentional on the top, but it also could happen accidentally. We know here on Earth there are meteorites that came from Mars. From, you know, say like when there's a big asteroid hitting Mars and a chunk gets blown off, sometimes it'll come from Earth. The opposite probably happened. Again, we know 65 million years ago that a big asteroid hit Earth. It's quite possible a chunk of Earth went over to Mars and maybe had some you know spores deep inside the rock and then got there. Okay. So. We can pretty confidently say that this probably has happened over the amount of time that life is, is present here on Earth. So that one we have to check on. The timing, again, I'm throwing out the data here. Let's say, let's, let's use the timing from the previous one and say that maybe this is more akin to what we saw in the previous example, more like uh, 6,000 centuries or 600 centuries ago. That maybe if this was around the time of Homo erectus, you could have this continued change over that time to, say, modern looking Vulcans, modern looking Cardassians. Again, the last piece is important that you need to, of course, move the sustaining life forms too. You can't just plop somebody down on Neptune and expect them to be okay. <laughs> the last one's an interesting one. Modern aliens descend from Earth hominids. Again, we can see that you know the physical features might have changed over time from that Homo erectus version to the modern form, the modern alien form, at least as depicted in Star Trek. Now, what's interesting about this, this is completely tested. So if this is true. Humanoids should be more similar genetically to each other. You should be more similar genetically to a Vulcan or a Cardassian or an Andorian than you are to a chimp. Those are actual DNA sequences. Cardassian, <laughs> just kidding. If they were real, that would have been. But this is a very clear and testable prediction that we could do. And if we saw something like this, we could conclude that those humanoids actually came from Earth. In fact, this is exactly the approach that is used for inferring direction of HIV transmission in criminal cases. Actually, I have two hypothetical people, John and Mark. They both have HIV, they're both pointing fingers at each other. You gave it to me, you know, you gave it to me. They go to court, court orders some DNA tests. They get a bunch of different isolates of HIV for each one. What they find is that, look, all of Barb's are very close to, are very similar to each other's. Whereas some of John's are much more different, but what's interesting is some of John's are more similar to Barb's than there are to others of John's. What does that mean? What that means is that John necessarily infected Barb. Right? Now we can apply the same thing to life forms. We want to test whether Earth gave life to other planets or if other planets gave life to Earth. This is exactly the pattern you'd expect to see. In this case, all the humanoids, or 
over here on, on the near the bottom are all more closely related to each other than they are to these other forms which you know are just found here already. This is exactly the same thing that is done in, in criminal cases that could be applied in the context of aliens. Now again, we're doing this in the context of humanoids, but this is what would be done with bacterial forms that were found on Europa or Mars or something like that. For those of you who are hardcore trekkies, I will say this is this hypothesis is consistent with the Voth species from Voyager. They're supposedly descendants of Earth hadrosaurs that escaped the mass extinction 65 million years ago. Interestingly, in that episode, they actually used genetic data and did exactly that test I just showed you up there. So that's really good. Overall, could some life on Earth be on space? Yeah. With that timing, again, we tweaked it. We're not using a Native American thing. That's just weird. We're <laughs> a much older time frame. Could modern aliens descend from ancient Earthlings? Again, can't rule it out. <laughs> so, again, the challenge for this is that you have to move enough other things to keep life alive. It has to be reasonable conditions. But the punchline, I'm not done with all this, the punchline to could we see life as we know it elsewhere and how, most likely the answer to it is yes, if it came from Earth. That's not especially appealing answer, but it is honestly the, probably the most likely answer if we were to find something on, say, uh, Europa, for example. Now, one thing I haven't talked about at all, oh, actually, I should say, any of you are fans of Martian Chronicles, it's very similar to the very last line of it, where you know, the, the kids want to go and see some Martians, and they're kids of human kids, and they say, okay, we're going to see the Martians, we're going to see the Martians, they go to this Martian lake, okay, that's wrong, they go to Martian lake, and they look, they see their own reflections. Same idea. That's the last line of Martian Chronicles. Now, one thing I haven't touched on at all is what about all this fear creating? Well, honestly, if they came from Earth, say, within the past 100,000 years, or maybe even a little bit more than that, it is quite possible. The reason we know it's quite possible is because this happened on Earth among the humanoids within the past 100,000 years. We know that all modern humans, everybody here in this room, myself included, have genes from ancient Neanderthal. If you actually done a test with uh, 23 and I'll give you your, your, your Neanderthal percentage of like 1.9%. Neanderthal, woo! <laughs> a lot of humans have some Denisovan DNA, that's another ancient Earth hominid. The, the, the Neanderthals and Denisovans also integrate with each other. You guys might remember back in September or August, there was a big report about a first generation Neanderthal Denisovan hybrid that was found, like a fossil from this. That's amazing. A first generation hybrid from two long extinct hominids that was found here on Earth. That just shows again how good the fossil record is for a lot of these things. So, yeah, this actually does explain the integrating pretty well. So, what have we covered here so far overall today? We've talked about common ancestry of life, lots of evidence for it. We've talked about how it's reflecting classification, we've gone over misconceptions for evolution, we've talked about natural selection, how it's again mathematical inevitability. Talked about how natural selection leads to convergence, the role of chance in evolution, using DNA phylogenies, those are the trees that I keep showing you. Talked about life on Earth may have been seeded from outer space, and how Earth life forms may have gone to other planets. Talked about humanoid interbreeding. That's a lot of science for a talk about starting. <laughs> so, when I first started doing this sort of thing where I gave talks at the science fiction conventions or I started working on the book, people would ask me, the person who has the office next to me would ask me, why do you do this? Why don't you just write, write a book about the events of revolution? Well, first thing is, of course, that book already exists. But the, other thing, the thing about it is, for me, I like science fiction because to me it's like a set of hypotheses where you can look at something and say, like, okay, it's easy to throw stones and stuff, but like, how could it be true? It forces a good creative process for you that makes you really think deeply. The other thing, too, is I mean, a lot of people are just born naturalists. A lot of people just, you know, they grow up saying they're watching Bill Bud and you know, Animal Planet and stuff like that. Yeah, I was watching Battlestar Galactica and Star Wars and things like that. So. 
for reaching people like me, no moment didn't work as well, whereas this works pretty well for, for some people. Now, I actually do a spring break class with my colleague, Professor Eric Spann, who's also at Duke. We actually went to the Duke Lemur Center, learned a lot about biogeography, looked at the lemurs there. Same day, we went to go see Kong, Skull Island. Final presentation for the class was to contrast Madagascar with Skull Island and explain why you might see the things you see on Skull Island. And wow, they learned a lot. They came up with a lot of interesting hypotheses. They did a ton of research, looking at the primary literature, trying to figure this stuff out. It was just a great exercise. And this is this is why I really want to use those things. I want to inspire people to like go out there and really figure out how something could have worked and just get excited enough to try to learn a little bit more about it.